thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. I am really excited to have you join me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, because I hope and I've been praying that this episode will give you more encouragement, more hope, more confidence going forward than, than, than you can really stand, that it will be that encouraging to you, that exciting. The prospects will be so glorious for the work that you're doing, whether it is raising your children, laying bricks, uh, providing order to a business's uh, accounts, or in my case and those of many of the listeners who probably share an interest in politics and in law, to, to them, that if we labor rightly by faith, we can be assured of glorious prospects down the road. Now, that message in itself almost sounds contrary to everything we hear today within Protestantism, that it's all going to get worse, and ours is just to be faithful, it's just to do our duty, the results are up to God, but we know the results are in the end going to all be bad, right? Well, today you're going to hear the scripture verses that I didn't get to last week pertaining to God's eternal covenant and the working out of that covenant over time culminating in the new covenant and what Christ did that I think will just um, blow your mind. I mean, I hope it doesn't. I hope this is all just a refresher and it's just an affirmation and it's just an encouragement. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, I never heard any of what I'm getting ready to tell you today. It was never put together for me the way I hope to be able to put it together for you. And so I was one of those who did my duty. And I hoped for the best, but I was constantly being bombarded by, well, it really won't make any difference. And of course, if it really won't make any difference, then I'm not sure what the point of trying is. But anyway, that's where you get duty is ours and results are up to God. And that's true. But if we do our duty according to God's covenant purpose established before time, and where that covenant is going, we can be assured of glorious prospects, not just in the time to come, but in this present time. And today, you'll hear that. And if this is new for you, I, I, I pray you'll share it with some others. Or maybe it's not new for you, but you know some who might need to hear it. I hope you might share it with them. So last week, we were talking about the covenant of God in terms of the eternal covenant, the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made before the foundation of the world for the redemption of the world in light of the fall. In other words, the fall was not something that happened, and so God went to plan B, because that means that God's future course of action is dependent upon what happens in the present that God is learning something in the present 
to which he now needs to react. That means God's knowledge is not perfect and that he gets knowledge from outside of himself and God is not full of all wisdom and knowledge. So we have to be really careful because sometimes we don't really know who God is and think upon his attributes. We get messed up right from the get-go that God went to plan B. He never went to plan B. God can't go to plan B. That would imply that his thoughts and plans for plan A somehow failed and were thwarted. But that's not the case. So what we said last week is we pointed to the fact that Pink says all the blessings of God come consistent with God's covenant through Jesus Christ. In other words, as I said last week, they don't come because I've been faithful. Now, that that could sound heretical for just a moment. But they come because God has been faithful to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was faithful to the Father. The Son was faithful to the Father and the Son. And so, as God works in us, He works to will and to do His good pleasure, and He brings forth the covenant purposes as we, by faith, work in terms of the covenant. Now, as I said last week, if you don't know what the covenant is and you don't know where it's going, you don't know how to live by faith. You'll live by something else and not according to the covenant purposes of God. And you may find when that day of dawning and revelation comes that all this makes sense, and I pray it's today, you'll go, oh my goodness, I... I was kicking against the pricks. Now, thankfully, because God knows all things from beginning and end, and He's eternal, He's infinite, His knowledge is without fail in, in, within Himself, He took into account all of our failures, took into account all of my failures, and is using all of those things, even now in my own life, because I'm sharing them with you. So, Anyway, let's, let's just hop into the scripture verses that support the things that, that we said last week that Pink was writing about and see the gloriousness of the Word of God and His covenant purposes. And next week, then, we'll look at how we live by faith according to those covenant purposes and what that looks like in the context of some specific issues taking place in our culture. So, here we go. From the point that... Pink made, that all our blessings come through the covenant in the person through Jesus Christ. We read in John 1, 16 and 17, and of his fullness we have all received. It's not from our fullness, but it's from his that we received. One of the things I loved about some of the Puritan prayers as I began to, to go back into the history that's been ignored in the modern church is is that they talked about what God has purchased for us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we've not improved our privileges. In other words, there are things that Jesus Christ purchased for us, the storehouse of bounty, of, of, of blessings, of life, that He's ready to pour out if we will live by faith and ask for the Holy Spirit to to work in us, to will and to do all of his good pleasure. The verse coming, obviously, from um, Philippians. So that's how John begins. We receive, whatever we receive, we've received from his fullness and grace 
for grace. Now the next verse is interesting because he, he says this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to stop here because that's been used by some people to say, see, there's an old covenant work of God that he put on pause or discontinued for a time to do this new spiritual New Testament, new covenant work. And once he removes the church from the scene, then um, God will resume his work uh, in space and time with the Jewish people. And we talked about that last week, how in, in the loss of the understanding of the eternal covenant and that the temporal covenants were the working out of the eternal covenant, ministers unfamiliar with that eternal covenant and the concept of covenants uh, divided time into strange ways and separated the old from the new in ways that are not proved through Scripture. And we're going to see the rest of that uh, in what we cover today. But Sinclair Ferguson made a great statement about this verse that I want to share with you, and it comes from his book, The Whole Christ. And uh, I encourage you to get it and read it. It's not long, but it's very good. And he writes this, When John says that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the relationship he sees between grace and the law is not antithetical, but complementary. In other words, there's not this old thing, and now there's this new thing, and so we can disregard the old thing, the law. He says, no, Christ's ministry, which is grace, truth, reality, fulfills Moses' ministry, which was law, shadow, and type. This is further elaborated by the verbs John employs. Law was given, but Christ came. When, in Romans 6.14, Paul affirms that we're not under law, he's not denying the law continues to be relevant. He's been accused of precisely this. But already, in Romans 3.31, he has stressed that rather than overthrow the law, the gospel functions to uphold it. After all, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, and since it is holy and righteous and good, and spiritual. The new covenant in Christ establishes the law not only externally, but also internally. Christ died, quote, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we'll pick up about this idea of walking according to the Spirit in just a moment as part of the revelation of the mystery of God and the new covenant. But let's keep going on and talking about this concept of the covenant and what it is and where it's headed. Romans 16, 25-26. Paul says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. So he's saying there's been a mystery. And then he adds this, which was kept secret since the world began. In other words, there is now in Jesus Christ a revelation of something that was mysterious, that, in other words, we couldn't fully comprehend or apprehend or understand or appreciate. It was in shadows and types, but it was pointing to something. But it's been kept secret since the foundation of the world. Now there we're talking about eternality. 
And he said, but now it has been made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God. So there was a command of God since the world began that was going to reveal a great mystery pertaining to the restoration and reconciliation of all things back to God through Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that revelation of that commandment of the everlasting God was made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So notice that our obedience there is of faith in this mystery that has now been made known. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8, through 8, where Paul notes that he is speaking of a wisdom among those who are mature. Now, in other words, I was one of those persons who was not very mature. I was not taught these fundamental principles as if they were not really important, that I could get along in life fine without them, that I didn't need a fuller understanding of the knowledge of God and the way that he works in his cosmos. Well, that wasn't really necessary, I guess, right? But he says, what we're speaking about here is wisdom among the mature. And so I'm praying that there are those who are mature today being encouraged, and those who perhaps have not been taught these things are in the process of maturing. And he says, but yet, even then, it's not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, and notice what he says about them, who are coming to nothing. So see, there's, a, there's an inverse thing happening here. There is a revelation of a mystery since the foundation of the world, an everlasting command, and everything that is contrary to that everlasting covenant is coming to nothing. So when our work is not in accordance with the covenant, our work is coming to nothing, and our labor is in vain, because it's not in the Lord according to the covenant that exists with Christ as the mediator and reconciler of heaven and earth back to God. And he says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Notice what he says about this. It's the same as what Paul wrote in Romans. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Wow. So when God created us in Eden, it was very good. But we were destined for progress to glory. As the scripture says, we are being transformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory, being prepared in this life for that ultimate glory that comes on that last day. And we look forward to it with great expectation. And he says, look, none of the rulers of this age knew this mystery, for if they had known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, I always read that as saying, oh, wow, this is God. I, I better not uh, crucify him. And, and maybe that's what he means. But I also think 
If they had really understood the mystery, they would have said, we better not crucify him, because to crucify him is to make atonement, it's to usher in this new covenant, and that by itself destroys the works of the devil, who is our father. So we better not kill him, because it will be our own undoing. Anyway, let's move on. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, where Paul is talking about the dispensation of the grace of God that was given for him, and the mystery that was revealed to him. Now, again, so here we're talking about there was a mystery. There were veils, uh, a word used in Scripture, of course, used with, uh, with the synagogue, too. There were veils that, that obscured what was later to be revealed that we might walk in faith and learn how to walk in faith so that we would be ready for that mystery that was veiled, that we were walking in faith toward, could be revealed, and we would know how to walk in faith, because we had been practicing walking in faith. And he says that this was not made known in other ages to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and the prophets. And here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. So everything, again, has to come through Christ, through the gospel, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So God was planning all along to redeem a people for himself. And that would necessarily mean that it would include those who were not Hebrews. Because not everybody was going to be a Hebrew. Now, you, you, you could take the position that God intends only to save Hebrews, and therefore, uh, you know, those of us who are not of ethnic Jewish-Hebrew background, well, we're just out of luck, right? You can't bring us in without understanding that there's a fuller development of what God was doing in a particular people to create a different people. We're going to come back to that in just a moment because it was clear that that was coming. But now let's take a look at Colossians 1, 24 through 27. And Paul is, again, talking about the church, and he says that he became a minister of that church for a purpose, to fulfill the word of God, which he describes in the next verse, verse 26, as, quote, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. And what is that mystery that's being revealed? To them to his saints, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So, the glory of this mystery is now being revealed to the Gentiles, which is the same for the Gentiles as it is for the Jew, which is, he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, that should take us back and hearken us back to the 
to the prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel of a new covenant in which I'll write my laws on their heart. And what was not clear is that he would write it on their heart through the indwelling of the Spirit who was used in the Godhead to write the commandments and the law and the Word of God. And so, picking up on what he says, that this richness of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is also for the Gentiles, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time, prior to this coming of Christ, prior to the um, bringing to a uh, revelation, this eternal covenant that's been successively revealed through the covenants with Noah and Abraham and David, he says, remember this, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. But now there's a new commonwealth, a new ecclesia, a new assembly, a new congregation. And he says, And you had no hope and were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, what Paul has been saying in these verses should have been known to the Jews of Jesus' day. One of the striking things about the story of Nicodemus is that Jesus said that Nicodemus should have known exactly what Jesus was talking about and what the Messiah was coming to do. He, they should have known from the Old Testament. So, if they should have known things from the Old Testament, then I would submit that we can still learn things from the Old Testament. And persons like Andy Stanley and others who poo-poo and disregard and don't teach out of the Old Testament are denying to us an opportunity to see the glory of God being revealed through the ages and how God works so that we might know how He works in the future. See? So again, I come back to the point, if we don't understand what God is doing in these covenants, we won't understand what He's doing in this new covenant, and we won't know what we should be doing, how we should be proceeding, what living the law of faith according to the covenant looks like. And so this verse came back to me uh, last week. It's Psalm 102, verses 18 through 22. And the psalmist writes this, This will be written for the generation to come. Okay, so he's writing something for a generation of people that's going to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Now, what's fascinating about that is that that word created is the word vara that's actually used to talk about the creation in Genesis chapter 1. So God is saying, for the people yet to come, which is us, which is when this mystery of all these covenants is finally revealed and made manifest and declared and made known, there will be a creation of a people. They're yet to be created. Now, if you'll read through some of the verses in Isaiah towards the end, I don't have them off the top of my head here, 
but but the prophet speaks of I will give you a new name. I will give you a new name. And guess what? We do have a new name now under the new covenant. We are all baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is now our name as the people of God. Just like David, Fowler is my name. I'm a Fowler, and my daughter's a Fowler. My grandchildren are part Fowlers. You see, we now have a new name, as Isaiah said we would. The people of God have a new name. It's those who are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, notice that this is consistent within what Jesus says. Jesus is having this debate with the Pharisees about who is their father, and they say they have Abraham as their father, and Jesus makes this strong statement that just infuriated him. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, my friends right there, you'd have to say, what? How could he see the day of Jesus? For the same reason, I suggest we might ask that question, is because we can't see what God's doing with his covenant, and we think everything's supposed to get worse and we're supposed to lose. And someday, our children or our grandchildren, or mine at least, will look back and say, how could they not see what Abraham was seeing that wasn't yet and, and, and my parents and, and, and my grandparents were living based on what they saw and not by faith because they couldn't see the invisible things of God that are being carried out according to the purposes of the eternal covenant of God. Let me get back to, to this point here, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. Well, where do we find this? Pick it up in Hebrews chapter 11, 9 through 10. By faith, referring to Abraham, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of, with him of the same promise. So he was in the land of promise. You say, hey, God fulfilled his promise, right? He was in the land of promise. But he's saying, no, 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 no. The writer of Hebrews is saying, but he saw something more than that particular physical piece of dirt. In that particular age or epoch of time, it says, because, the next verse, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In other words, Abraham saw that the world was built at this point, post-fall, on shifting sand, and it was going away. It was disintegrating. And a new city that had real foundations had to be built. And so the writer of Hebrews continues and says, hey, it's been built, friends. What Abraham was looking for has been built. Why do I say that? Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you, referring to the people of the new covenant, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, and to the ecclesia, the congregation of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, 
to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. Now, there's several things in here, and I can't touch on all of them in the time we have left. But, but notice here, when he's saying a heavenly Jerusalem, he's not speaking of some mystical, spiritualized, Gnostic, far-off, out-of-this-cosmos place. He's talking about a city that is heavenly in its nature. It is a city that is the kingdom of God come, will being done kind of city. It is of a heavenly nature. It has foundations that are not like the foundations of the world. And notice here that he takes the new covenant and the blood of the sprinkling back to that of Abel. Right after the fall, the first recorded offering by men to God, the Hebrew says, was made by faith by Abel. Now, what does this now mean for us? Well, look in Revelation eleven fifteen. It says here, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And we could say, oh, well, that's a day to come. But wait a minute. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, the name Jesus most often uses of himself, Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. So when Jesus ascends, he is coming with the clouds of heaven. And it says in Daniel, he came to the ancients of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, that which he got upon his ascension and his seating at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, Ephesians chapter 1, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now this should hearken back to us. Again, this is, this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. If you had really read and understood the Old Testament, you would have known this. Because what is being written in Daniel is what is being said in Psalm 2, 6 through 11. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, which we have now come to. That's where we dwell in a reality that, that the world does not see, but we know is there because Christ has made all things new. The psalmist continues, I will declare the decree. So there we have it. A decree. The Lord has said to me, so Yahweh has said to this person, me, and what does he say to him? You are my son. Clearly a reference to Jesus. Today I have begotten you, the only begotten of the Father. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. There we're seeing insight into the very nature of the covenant that we began with at the top of today's episode, or actually I think it was in last week's episode, about the nature of the eternal covenant and what God the Father promised to the Son. The Lord, Yahweh, continues in his comments, his statement to his Son, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now we come out of this statement by Yahweh to the Son 
to what the psalmist now says to the people of earth. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, O presidents of the United States, O justices on the United States Supreme Court, O governors of the states and legislative members of the states and city council members and state judges and federal judges and, and county officials, be instructed, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's what God has done. And indeed, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, as it says in Galatians 6, and I don't remember now off the top of my head where, everything is now about new creation. Everything is now about new creation. Live as a new creation. You are a new creation. And God is making all things new, as he said in Isaiah, that he would. And he's doing it right now, according to his eternal covenant. And that should determine how we now live by faith as we look to the future. And we'll talk about that next week in connection with some of the issues percolating in our culture. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.